days long Seven miles Ride the snake He's old And his skin is cold Took a face from the ancient gallery and he he walked on down the hallway. I want to 
Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was The Doors and the End live in Stockholm in 1968. And that's because we'll be exploring the history of golf today with John Robb, who's got an excellent book out, The Art of Darkness, and we'll be going through the history of golf and golf sounds. So let's hear my chat with John. John. Hiya, how are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So The Art of Darkness, The History of Goff, and uh, I was really impressed when I read through it. It's the full broadness of Goff, really, because you take us back to the first time in, is it the Roman era where the Goff term was used and then take us through literature, architecture, before focusing on music. So it is a wide span. I think it's important with it. Well, any kind of pop culture, you have to put it into a context and do the deep dive. But I think Goff even lends itself to an even deeper dive because when you start to like peel back the layers of what it is, you realise that every generation has its own way of dealing with the blues with whatever technology is available at that time. So if you're Lord Byron, you write a book or you write a poem. If you were in the in the Middle Ages, you know, the way of dealing with melancholy or which is and the melancholy is a fascinating yeah. kind of thing. And to embrace the melancholy and dealing with the blues. At that time maybe it was building a cathedral, maybe it's doing a painting. And in, in sort of my time, it was because pop culture was so central to the culture at that time. After the punk wars, it was like, you know, the way of dealing with the blues of our generation was to make that kind of music, you know, and, uh, or, or listen to that kind of music. And I mean, there's a, and all these factors kind of feed in. So in a way, you could see, I mean, the fall of Rome was the first time the word goth had been sort of used because yeah. the tribe were the Visigoths. And they were sort of like they were the baddies of Europe for such a long time because they got rid of, because they, they brought it around the end of classical Europe. So when the Germans built churches in the Middle Ages, they were kind of looked sneered at as being Gothic churches, but it had its own art. It had its own rules of art and they celebrated that. And that became a strand as well, in a sense. But I think in a, in a way, I like the idea of the book going on for 2000 years and it all coalesces in about 1979. <laughs> <laughs> and musically, um, a range of groups that which were part of the range of influences that came into what we now know as golf. But I think you say in, in the book that the Doors were the band that was first termed golf. Yeah, the first sort of modern sort of band to be termed golf was the Doors. Their first gig in New York City in 1967, the live reviewer said, that, you know, that their music had a gothic edge to it. And the other line that they used, which I, I actually prefer this line, is that the uh, Doors reflect Americans' fascination with violence back at itself which is such a great line. It's a perfect line to have in your review. And then, and then you look at the doors and, and obviously it's all there already. The yeah. template is there. You've got sort of a poetic Byron-esque lead singer dressed in black, singing the baritone voice over this kind of Baroque dark music. I mean, you couldn't get more of a, a template for goth than that. But what was interesting was a delayed response in the UK because the doors were a cult band in the yeah. UK till about 1979. I mean, in America, they were a huge band. They had number yeah. one albums. But here, that you know, like my fire got to number twenty, and and, and Hello, I love you got to number forty. They were just they weren't really in the middle of the mix of things. But when Apocalypse Now came out, and the end was played over the credits at the end of the film, it was mind blowing. So a lot of people come out of punk went to watch that film and got completely into the Doors. And I, I was wondering all the way through that book, in a sense, was the Doors sort of delayed influence, you know, mixed with their glam rock, mixed with punk rock. Mm. I would say you got the DNA of what became goth out of that. I mean, it wasn't like 
there's loads of Doors copyists, but that kind of vibe the Doors had, sort of mixed in with punk and mixed in with Bowie, is pretty well creates goth. And then Jim Morrison, lyrically, he was reading various literature and the end itself embodies certain aspects of what he was reading. Yeah, well, yeah, with the fascination of sex and death, which is very Doors and very also very goth as well. And also I think he's, he's a very handy bridge between the romantic poets, the decadent poets, because he'd read them all. I mean, it, famously, you could quote a line out of a book and he'd tell you what book it was. I mean, I don't know how he found the time to do all that. Because when he's about 18, he leaves college and goes to take loads of acid in LA. But when, when did you read all these like 17th, 18th century books? But he was immersed in that and he, and he was a very Byron-esque kind of figure, which is kind of interesting as well, because I like the idea that those poets in the 19th century were very much equivalent of what became the rock bands later on. In fact, a lot of them were far crazier, far more decadent and far more arrestable than any rock stars ever been. I don't think... There was, there was some aspects of their lifestyles which wouldn't chime with the modern era, but they're, they're interested in the dark and interested in pushing what, what you could do artistically and lifestyle-wise, you know, pushing everything to the extreme. You know, the romantic poets were, Jim Morrison was, the Doors were, and in a sense, the gothic sort of post-punk period was as well. Looking at the 60s, you had most bands going down the usual path of be into sort of the hippie era, but there's a handful of groups which you call an unholy alliance that really kicked against that. And, and they were, all three of them, the Stooges, the Doors and the Velvet Underground, weaved their ways into what ultimately became the goth music scene. Yeah, I think those three bands are the key bands in the 60s. I mean, there's all, of course there's other bands. I mean, I mean the Stones have got to be in there as well. Obviously, mm. Painted Black, you couldn't get a more perfect title. But with those three bands, they are the Unholy Trinity and think, I think the, the Doors are probably the most, but the Velvets are quoting an awful lot, and also the Stooges as well. But in, in a way, the Stooges were the, probably the first band to try and be the Doors. You know, there's, I'll put it in the book, and there's a, there's a great thing I found on a website about, and it wasn't written by a Stooges fan. It was about the university that Iggy was at when the Doors played there. Yeah. And there were some students who went to that university reminiscing about that gig talk about how it completely affected James Osterberg, their college chum. <laughs> so the Doors played two shows, and the first one, Jim Morris was so drunk, he, could, he, he just fell over on stage and couldn't do anything. And Iggy thought that was amazing because it was total mad theatre. But the second set, they came back on half an hour later, and Jim Morris was completely on it, which is quite weird. That, he must have the strongest coffee there or something. And he was totally mesmerised, and that's how the kind of Stooges started. And in fact, when Joe Morrison died, Iggy was actually in the running to replace him in the doors, you know, right. like for an audition things. But they could, because they, the studio took it further and they sort of reduxed it down to the ultimate minimalistic version of the doors. That was influential. I mean, influential on glam and punk. I mean, and glam was the next part as well, wasn't it? Because yeah. I think Bowie is so key. And also Mark Bowler to a sense. But I think the, the artisticness of Bowie and the fluid sexuality of Bowie and also the flamboyance of Bowie as well. So in a way, mm. a lot of goth was like a dark glam, wasn't it? Yeah. Velvet Underground, especially that early period for the Velvets, you've got Lou Reed, huge, fantastically well-read again. You've got John Cale and the, the sound and the experimentation that it was bringing. And then adding Nico into the mix as well created very much a gothic template in a way. Yeah, because it makes you realise how old-fashioned rock was in the 60s. The idea of adding a woman into a band mm. was considered a bit, bit strange. Well, I mean, even the band, they didn't really get what Warhol was doing, did they? What are you doing? Well, she's, she's, not, she's not one of the guys. You know? <laughs> I think Lou Reed was never that comfortable with it, was he? And, uh, and her very doleful, dark voice. I mean, she, she, a lot of bands will talk about Nico. And you can see that 
you know, if you do that stuff in the harmonium later on, those early records of John Cale, that's very template for goth as well. John Cale, really important as well. I think the drones he brought yeah. to the Velvets very much replicated out through the uh, through the goth thing. I mean, the, the influence, I mean, of course, the influence everybody, didn't they? But the, what the goth, goth scene took from was that darkness and that claustrophobia as well, that that very dark, claustrophobic kind of stuffiness in New York, you know, which 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 was very embraced. And also the romance in New York, you know, in them days, nobody went to New York apart from bands on tour. You know, it's like, you know, up to the pre-pandemic, you could go to New York for your holidays. I mean, nobody when I was growing up really went to New York for the holidays. So it seemed like this incredibly romantic, poetic city that cool stuff came out of, you know. So all those, I mean, that, again, those they were all influences on glam rock as well. Bowie's all influenced by all that sort of that unholy trinity. And I think, but I think what Bowie did with it, he sort of anglicised it and brought it into a new decade, which, of course, was a, was a prime influence on punk, but also a prime influence on goth as well. So, I mean, you get a band like Bauhaus. I mean, Peter Murphy's voice is very similar to Bowie's. And he's actually now, at post-Bauhaus, he's gone on a tour doing the Ziggy Stardust album with Adrian Ballou, which is like, wow. that's kind of weird, isn't it? I know, you think, you know, I mean, he'd be very good at it. You think you're actually in your own band doing great music. Why, why not just do that? Because <laughs> Peter's also described Nico as um, Mary Shelley-esque and, and All Tomorrow's Party as a, a song as well has been termed a, a gothic masterpiece. Yeah, well, it, well, it is, isn't it? Because it's, it's kind of, it's sort of slow. And it's, it's got almost kind of tribal, the drums are, because the pounding Motuka thing on the toms and the atmosphere of it, you know, the darkness of it and the gloom of it, but transcendental as well. You don't wallow in the gloom, you embrace the gloom. You know, that's the whole thing about goth and anything that's kind of gothic. It's, I mean, because there's beauty in the darkness and that was a very key theme in all this. But it was also about, um, yes, things are dark, but let's embrace the darkness and let's go beyond the darkness. If you went to a goth club in 79, 80, it wasn't full of people moping around. It's full of people having a really great time dancing. Because the other prime influence on goth was, was dance music because yeah. it's all about clubs, whereas punk had been about live gigs and, and, you know, the visceral thrill of a live gig. Goth was about that, but also about clubs. So all over Britain, in the most weird little towns, goth clubs sprung up. And in the 70s, it'd be like, there'd be a few Bowie Roxy clubs. You'd have to go to cities for those. You know, there'd be four or five in the country. Yeah. But suddenly a place like Keighley <laughs> or, or Halifax or Blackpool, where I grew up, had a goth club, you know, where... But they weren't called goth clubs, they were called alternative clubs initially, and goth was a retrospective term put on the scene afterwards. But the music, it was all in place, you know, the same kind of groups get played in there, and it was people into all the alternative styles, alternative looks, and the alternative music at the time. But you had to be able to dance to the music, right. so this is where the black music comes in, sort of funk, disco, um, and dub as well, the space of dub, was all mixed into all these kind of ideas, which, which nearly every goth group has that kind of that dark daub or, or that death disco kind of vibe to it or, or or that funk, you know, that sort of grinding funk like Killing Joke had it, didn't they? I mean, yeah. I know, you know, you know, they had that, their early records, that they were about the dance floor, but it was the most heavy, intense thing you'd ever heard on a dance floor. So they definitely cranked up the heaviness, but it also brought the funk to it.
you mentioned David Bowie a few times. It'd be good to explore him, but especially in his early career, he was one of the, the first people really, certainly over these shows, who latched onto the, the Velvets. And you've also got him reading Alistair Crowley and interested in the occult. And that that Freddie's way into the man who sold the world. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, obviously Bowie made great records. He was a great pop artist, a great songwriter. But he added a depth to it, didn't he? A depth in the theatre to it, which is which is fascinating. And this is what makes him a great artist, wasn't it? It wasn't just about a few chords. There's a story there. But also, he was, he was like a teacher, wasn't he? So his interviews were a crash course for the ravers, literally. You know, you'd read them and, and they would mention William Burroughs or Alistair Crowley or the Velvet Underground or the Stooges. And all this stuff was, if you were 12, 13, 14, was beyond your realm. And Bo was introducing these ideas in and they sit there and they ferment for the next five, six, seven years and all emerge in the punk and post-punk period. It had a profound effect on people, you know, and it's, I mean, as a great artist, I mean, it's very rare you get an artist that turns people onto other stuff, you know, opens the doors to other things. I mean, often an artist could do that where it's suggested, where they don't really know about that stuff, but the, the fans get the feeling there's something else and they go on that quest to find that something else. But Bowie made it easy because he signposted it for people. But what he was signposting wasn't easy. He was signposting pretty esoteric stuff for 12 or 13-year-olds to get into. I mean, William Burroughs, Arthur Crowley weren't in your local library. You had to go and have a bit of a look for that. It wasn't like you could dredge around and Google and find it. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit more than that. So, so definitely all that thing and all those ideas are all in the pot for what eventually became goth. In fact... When you think about all those ideas, it's almost inevitable something like that's going to happen, isn't it? You know, yeah. if it hadn't happened, it would have been really weird, wouldn't it? And as you say, he's bringing all these influences in, but then he's championing and, and producing Lou Reed and, and Iggy Pop as well. Yeah, I think this is really important. It's a very generous artistic spirit because most artists gen- generally just working on their own things. It's fair enough, you know, it's, you've got to do your own thing, but he was actually saving careers of people. I mean, Iggy Pop was down on the pound, wasn't he? I mean... Bowie like put gotten cleaned up back in the studio and made perhaps his best record, you know. So that the Berlin records are amazing, aren't they? Ladies and gentlemen, David Bowie. Oh no, 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 not 
Stooges, of course, is one of the greatest rock and roll bands ever. But when, when he's doing that really weird, warts, minimalistic, dark disco or on The Idiots, that, that's an amazing record, a template record as well. I mean, it's, to me, it's probably his greatest record. You know, it's, there's so many elements there. And it's, I mean, and Iggy's always, you know, he's always vied for money to this day. But there's always that tinge of regret. He never quite went back into that place again where he took a risk there, didn't he? Because people wanted to do, the, you know, the world's forgotten boy rock and roll. And suddenly just went off in this really bizarre Berlin death disco trip, which I think was a big deal for a lot of people coming into golf because it suggested you can make rock and roll in other ways. You know, you didn't have to have guitar, bass and drums and everything turned up to 11. There was other ways of getting that feel in music. And I think maybe another band who were feeding into all this is Suicide. Uh, they were doing the same thing as well. This is rock and roll with, with just a keyboard and a drum machine, isn't it? They, they are as rock and roll as the studios ever were, but there's no guitars. And that's quite amazing. And, and they, were, they were totally terrifying as well. When you, when you heard the first album, you had no idea the context at all. And it, it is scary, isn't it? It's a dark, yeah. um, menacing, scary record. And the drum machine, I think, is really important as well. The drum machine gives a nod to the dance floor, but it's also picked up upon later by people like Sisters of Mercy and then the whole lead scene. And the drum machine is quite interesting in that context because obviously Eldritch was a big fan of 70s rock, but he, by having a drum machine, he instantly sounded modern. You know, and it's, it gave the sisters a, a space because the drum machine is very clinical and it creates a lot of space for their instruments to move around in and a minimalism, you know, which is really important as well. So I wrote a bit, bit about the New York no wave scene, which is obviously not goth at all, but that sense of minimalism was something that goth had as well in parallel. Because I think often goth is not look, you know, a lot of people who write serious about music don't really look at the goth bands as being serious bands, you know, because they're dressed up. I mean, there's always that weird thing in it if, People get dressed up, they're obviously pantomime, which I don't quite understand, you know. But it's, um, mm. but a lot of those bands are doing great art rock. I mean, the sisters make great art rock records. He, and he make, he's a great lyricist as well, Andrew Eldritch. He's, he does a lyrical minimalism, you know. It's a floor show, which I quote throughout the book, because it's a great song about people dancing on the dance floor, but in, in a slightly kind of dark, menacing kind of way, you know. So he wrote that song when he was DJing at um, the phono in Leeds, because he was stepping now and then into a bit of DJing looking at the, the dance floor, seeing what people move to and how they dance and how that works, which fed back into his own music. But he also wrote a song about it as well. I thought that was so perfectly meta to write a song about something that you're doing to work about how to write a song. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. 
the west with the Still the beast is born Still our bodies talking about that minimalism earlier so what about the cramps then because they their debut single i think was human fly it's got a real 50s rockabilly sense but it's with a dark twist i think when that came out human fly came out and the first cramps album came out again there was absolutely no context at all there's no idea that they had a dark sense of humor they looked terrifying you know brian gregory looked like a corpse you know i mean no nobody looked that corpse like ever it's like half the face was kind of missing but I remember we, we played the record, just look at the sleeve for, for ages, you know, just because they look really cool, but they also look completely psychotic at the same time. <laughs> There's no way, I mean, later on, they did play more for laughs. And it's great. I like the latest stuff. I mean, they're always a great band of cramps. But in that early period, when they were genuinely terrifying, did add another layer to it. He thought, what, what are these like? These, these even exist. I mean, how do they live? You couldn't imagine them doing mundane, normal things, which in, in a sense is what you want from a rock and roll band. You don't want to think about them going to the corner shop to buy a tin of beans. You want to actually think that, that the cramps actually are in a graveyard and actually taken out coffins and put on the stage. And when you're 16 and 17, it's, it's felt like that. And it sounded like that as well. The human fly, now we kind of know it's, it's kitschy in a sense, but it's also it's quite a terrifyingly dark piece of music. And of course, the cramps themselves, again, were never actually a goth band, but they were massive in goth clubs. You go to any goth club and they'd be played five times in a night. So... All the bands I'm writing about are central pillars. You get a chapter each in the book. Are the kind of things you would hear at the golf club in right. you know years ago? Whereas now people forget that. You know they, they would say you know there's archetype golf bands. That's all that was played, but it was a bit more varied than that. I mean you'd hear the four in a lot of golf clubs as well. You know, 
but not they weren't as central to it, obviously, as something like the Cramps were. And the Cramps were a big stylistic influence of goth as well. You know, so Brian Gregory's bone jewelry, people picked up on that, you know, the style, the look of them. And they weren't they were never really a psychobilly band. I mean, they made the term mm. up psychobilly, but all the other psychobilly bands were like completely different style of music. Because the thing about the cramps is, and when you read the chapter, you really get this, they were hippies, they were psychedelic hippies. But they, they were taking loads of acid and listening to backwards uh, rockabilly and turning that into psychedelic music. So Human Fly is actually a great piece of psychedelia. It's very simple and it's very reductive and it's very minimalistic. But at the same time, if you take hallucinogenic drugs to it, it's a fantastic thing to listen to. And the second album, they really, you know, that's when they came out was being like the hallucinogenic version really, isn't it? You know, so mm-hmm. Psychedelic Jungle is really a giveaway, you know. And I love that stuff about when they met, you know, I don't know if you got to that chapter, but when Lux and Ivy met, they met at this weird psychedelic college, hippie college in Sacramento or somewhere, where they studied this book about how fly, fly uh, allegoric mushroom is God. <laughs> and that's what they did as their course. And the end of the course, they just got, the, the teacher said, what, what degree do you want? They said, I want two, one, whatever it was. Said, okay, there you are. And that was it. And all they did was take loads and loads of acid. And I, I also like, I mean, to me, it's almost my favorite story in the book, their story, because it's a love story. These two completely mad people, they met. And for 40 years, they went out each other, you know, and it was a constant love story, you know, whereas they didn't get divorced, didn't split up, you know, they, they were totally in love with each other all the time. And the cramps is just an extension of them, really, you know. It's like the soundtrack to their to their kind of lives. And they went back to Cleveland, where um, Lux is from, and they saw um, television's second ever gig. I always thought that was quite weird. <laughs> television played their second gig out. They played one in New York, went up to Cleveland, played another one, sporting them. Rocket from the Tombs, who became Perubu. And looks and I, you know, that gig, I was thinking, how bizarre is that? There's about 30 people at this gig. So you got like Perubu, their band before Perubu, television on stage, and looks and Ivy. And no, nobody met anybody else that night. <laughs> you think, you think they've all met each other and go, but they all just went home. <laughs> but it's, the idea of them all being in the same place at the same point in time is quite fascinating, really, isn't it? <laughs> I'm a 
As we move forward and go back over to England, you've got the damned. You've got Dave Vanian, very sort of ghoulish, and you've got that goth looking away. You've got the Black Album and epic tracks like Curtain Call, which really lean into that goth aesthetic. I think uh, with the damned, it depends which one's in charge of the band at any given time, doesn't it? So when, when Dave's calling the shots, it goes more theatrical, psychedelic, gothic. And, you know, when... when Captain's calling the shots. It's it's he's a great pop songwriter, and he so the songs he writes are two minute catchy pop song with with a psychedelic twinge. And um, but it's weird, with Captain, because he never puts all the prog in, and prog's his thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's uh, with them. It's like Vanian was. I mean, he's a prototype, isn't he? He's yeah. you know, seventy six, seventy seven. He's got that. Like, well, before he's in the damned, he had the look. All right. It's it's interesting. He says like when it when. For him going on stage, he's actually dressing down. You know, he's dressing up more. And there's a great description of his flat in 1977, sort of the book, where it's, where it's it's full of like stuff that people abnormal would have anywhere, like in a goth kind of house or whatever, isn't it? But uh, it's full of like uh, stuffed dummies and, and, and weird pets and the walls all painted black. And he's living it 24-7 at the time. And even that first Damned album, there's a couple of like proto-gothic tracks like Fan Club and Feel the Pain. And the way he sings as well, he's because everyone else in punk was singing pretty intense and he's yeah. crooning a Jim Morrison star baritone. So he's bringing that into play. Um, so I would, I would argue that he definitely is. Whether he was, he didn't influence the whole scene, but he definitely opened the door to another way of being a front man, you know, another way of being in, in rock and roll. And in a similar way, you've got from the punk scene, you've got Susie and the Banshees, which again, not quite goth, but are a key band in that family. Oh, oh really? I mean, they hate the term. Goth. I mean, Susie would would, would like hang in from a lamppost using the term goth for them. Although when I interviewed Severin, he was quite happy to call gothic. Right. So it puts them in their mind like Edgar Allan Poe, gothic architecture, gothic literature, which which is I think it's important to underline really because the thing they saw, the thing about the term goth because it's a retrospective term for the scene, and it's, it was it was kind of a snarky term for the scene. So a lot of people felt like they're getting laughed at a bit for it, you know. So they they always call it goth for two f's, goth. <laughs> you know that's. Now seven we said we were definitely not goth, which they're not. You know, they, they're a standalone, brilliant rock rock band. You know that, but you know, I, I'm looking at the lineage of the Doors, Bowie, Banshees, and I, I think in a way, in a weird way, um, the Banshees are a really underrated band, aren't they? You don't often see they're really influential, and they did amazing music and stylistically incredible as well. Because there was a period of time when you go to a club and every woman would be a version of Susie. You know, I mean, and Susie, Susie had a thousand looks. You know, like Bowie went through the seventies. And it was a different look for each album. They're all completely brilliant. But Susie's doing it for each photo session. And that's really creative to come up with a different version of yourself that many times. And she always looked like really incredible. So the back, so in a way, whether she likes it or not, they're an incredible influence on the goth scene, you know. So the first Banshees album is very template. You know, it's got the tribal drums. Kenny Morris's drums are incredible. You know, when he went for the first audition, they took the cymbals off his drum kit and said no cymbals. So he had to do loads on the toms. And when John McKay joined, they'd listen to uh, Psycho, the strings, juk, juk, 
and so we want the guitar to sound like that, which is great, isn't it? So he couldn't do guitar stuff. He had to like re-navigate what he did. I made, and he came up with that sound, you know, that sort of chiming sound, which um, goes through a lot of post-punk. That was him, you know, it's that first Banshee's album. It's a game changer. I mean, it's hard to tell now because the passage of time, because it's influenced so many other people, you forget his impact and its power when it's actually there. You know, the first time you heard it, you thought, wow, I've never heard something like this before. And the space in the sense of space in the tracks, which is something Joy Division were really into, you know, when you know the drumming it was a big influence on Joy Division, wasn't it? Kenny Morris's drumming that the toms that uh, Steve used in Joy Division. So, you know, musicians will talk about the Banshees has been game changers, you know, quite a lot. It's just that you know, they don't quite get the credit they should in the great rock canon, do they? I mean, you were mentioning that early period of the Banshees and Happy House will be a, a staple of the goth club scene for as long as there'll, there'll be a goth club. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, in that scene, she's the icon. She's utterly iconic, you know. But I quite like the way that the icons of the scene have no truck of being in the scene. It's, <laughs> that is quite fascinating, isn't it? That, uh, it's, it's a very, very key strand to the whole thing. You wouldn't find one person in any of the bands who'd ever be happy to be called a goth band, but all their fans are goths. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Bauhaus think they're a punk band, you know, and right. Eldridge thinks he's 70s rock, you know, like updated into, into the 80s. I understand that. I mean, no band. I mean, with a band, you kind of want to be in a scene, so at least people know what you are. So that's that's okay. But you don't really want to be shackled by the scene. So, you know, if you want to go to stage wearing white clothes and everyone starts moaning on message boards, that's not goth. Like you've signed up to this manifesto. I mean, nobody signs up to a musical manifesto. But it's probably a point in time when what they were doing looked and sounded perfect for that kind of world. And you got to get those fans kudos for this because they're, they're loyal aren't they so even when a fan tears the scene down band tears the scene down for years the fans will stick with them you know so to this day you go to a Sister Mercy gig and you know across Europe 3,000 people there each night and they're all people who would kind of be goth gothish or give a nod to goth you know so they don't mind Eldridge spends every interview absolutely tearing it apart <laughs> <laughs>
Susie and the Banshees, and there's that direct line to the Cure and parallels. In you've got fans of the Cure, very gothic, but they wouldn't necessarily label themselves as goth. Well, the Cure kind of going before when it's the first album is like a John Peel art rock record. You know, it's it's almost like the Buzzcocks in a way. You know, like a lo-fi Buzzcocks. And the second and third albums were actually part of a different kind of scene and was forgotten about now, which used to be called the raincoat scene, which is like right. sort of gloomy proto post-punk. Like Joy Division were called a raincoat band initially because people wear raincoats because it rained a lot. And also, like I point out in the uh, in the clubs thing in the first chapter of the book, that if you were dressed up in the late 70s, early 80s, you could get a beating in a little town. So a lot of people would wear big coats to hide the clothes to get to the club in one piece, you know. But it's also because the weather was not great, like it is now, isn't it? But the only thing you could wear then was a big coat. So they became part of the style, you know, big green, like Ian Curtis wore a big green coat, uh, Robert Smith's album, so the raincoat bounce. But when he joined the Banshees, his style changes. And I think, right. you know, and he became very close to the Banshees. And, and there's an inf- of course, there's an influence there. You know, he's slightly younger, isn't there? But he's very much his own person. You know, it's just his version of that. And I think musically, with the you know, 17 Seconds and Faith, they're definitely finding their own space in the two amazing records. I mean, 70, I mean um, a forest is a track you'll hear to this day in clubs and things. But when they get to pornography, that becomes one of the great sort of goth albums. I remember when it came out, it was the darkest, most intense record I'd, I'd ever heard. You know, and that was, you think, wow, you can't get any further than that. Well, you couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't cut themselves, could they? It was so intense. And I saw them on that tour and it was so heavy and it was so um, engrossing and, and sort of music you could get lost in. It was like Joy Division in a way. It was dark, but it made it empowered you, lifted you. That, that comes across on 100 years. The lines in there, it doesn't matter if we all die, and it's got that melancholia. It's a very stark song, I mean, musically and lyrically, isn't it? I mean, it's, the music is a very stark terrain. It's probably my favourite Cure song. It's, it's an absolutely fantastic piece of music. And I think, um, but lyrically, yeah, I mean, in a way, though, once you embrace the idea, it doesn't really matter. You know, the universe is probably lasts forever. It's eternal. The planet Earth is a blink in the eye in terms of the universe. So actually, nothing really does matter, does it? But that's a very liberating thought, isn't it? You know, if you get hung up, that we're going to die anyway. Mm. So what? Let's do nothing. But on the other hand, you can do that the other way around. You know, mm. if you're going to die anyway, all those things that you have the fear about doing, you can just go and do them. I don't mean go out on a mad sort of rampage and shoot 16 people in a shopping mall. <laughs> Positive things. But the idea that people always feel inhibited. You know, people won't make art because they feel it's not going to be good enough. It doesn't matter because it because we're going to be, the universe is here for billions of years. No one's going to care about what you did, you know, in a hundred years' time, let alone a billion years' time. So in a way, that's how playing around with the dark and embrace the dark kind of works. You know, it's you don't get drowned in the dark. It's actually quite motivating.
you mentioned them earlier, Bauhaus, and it's amazing that a group comes out almost fully formed straight away with Bella Lugosi's Dead, perfect for the goth scene in every way, really. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, I know they've been in bands before, local bands, so they, they can obviously play a bit. But when you do your first rehearsal and you write Bella Lugosi's Dead, I mean, they just said to Kevin, the drummer, but do a bit of a bossa nova beat. And then they stuck at the really simple bass on it. And Daniel did amazing stuff on, on the guitar. I mean, we, we have to go on a little tangent here and just mm. really celebrate what an amazing guitar player he is, you know. Yeah. It's, never a, it's never a riff or a solo. It's, it's just weird, cool little noises that really embellish the songs. And also a lot of stuff he does is quite simple, but really effective. You know, it's like, it's so simple that nobody's thought of it before because people are always trying to overplay everything. So that's really good. And then Pete Murphy does that amazing vocal on it. And it's nine minutes. It's your first single, which they go and record four weeks later after writing it as a demo and it becomes a single. And, it's, and it becomes like the golf staple. So in a sense, it's kind of the track where, where a lot of people see the whole thing kind of starts. Yeah. Because it's dark, and it's shivering. It's got that dubby vibe, which I love as well. But it's also quite tongue-in-cheek, you know. It's it's kind of funny as well, you know. It's funny. It's not like Laugh Out Loud. For, it's not a comedy record by any measure. But it's kind of like, it's kind of, mm, yes, that's quite an amusing kind of record. And it's like, it's of a darkly amusing record, isn't it? But also quite shivery and spooky as well, you know. And it's uh, it's an amazing piece of music, which and let's not forget it's John Peel who played it virtually every night to make it. Right. To, you know, he really embraced Bauhaus because the music papers hated him, didn't they? Every review was terrible. But Peel got it, you know, they are one of the great art rock bands, you know, it's the, they're not goth, they're not this and that and that, they're actually art rock, you know, they make music, it's very artful. Every single song they did was completely different, you know, there was no, you know, it's not like the first album comes out and it's nine Bella Lugosi's, every single track is completely different from every other track, but it still sounds like them. And you can get groups who are very good at sort of replicating the formula over and over, like the Ramones were, that slight tiny micro switch between each song. Which is uh, kind of cool, the concept, isn't it? Don't go beyond the concept. But probably all, most of the best groups are ones who can sort of take their sound, but make loads of different, ver- completely different versions of it. But it's still them. You, know, you never lose the line of, of them being in that sound. So it's like the cure after pornography when they went pop. It's still the cure, isn't it? Even though it's almost like the opposite kind of music. And it's a bit of a shock the first time you hear it, but it's actually quite logical when you listen to it now. It's mm. it's just another version, another facet of their creativity.
white on white translucent black capes back on the rack Bella goose is dead The bats have left the bell tower The victims have been bled Red velvet lines The black box Bella goose is dead
And you also describe the role of Leeds in shaping the golf scene. And you've got the Phono Club as well. And that's where the music being played, some of the tracks that we discussed starts to come together. And then there's there's a scene that starts to create. And then ultimately, you've got the Sisters of mm. Mercy. It's quite interesting, really, because I mean, the Batcave gets all the credit. But the Batcave is in London, in yeah. Soho. And Batcave's important, of course. I mean, the Specimen were a really interesting band. You know, that kind of look, that fishnet look. And really, over, they really push the look to a limit. And early sex feed, they come out there. A lot of people like Nick Cave are hanging out there. You know, the Banshees are hanging out there. Robert Smith. So it's, it's, it's important. And no, no one's taking any of that credit away from it. But the fact is, the phone was actually before. You know, the phone was there a year or two before. Because in them days, the media never went outside London. So they had no clue stuff was going anywhere else, you know. And also that thing that in Leeds, people didn't go looking for the media. They didn't care. They're having a good time anyway, you know. People in Yorkshire don't need to be on the telly to, to validate what they do. They just get on with it, don't they? So it's like, it's like this is our, this is what we do here. You know, we don't we don't need the BBC to come and film a documentary. We're already doing it. But they didn't know. I mean, I, they genuinely didn't know this. The Black Cape probably didn't know the phono was existing. This is it's just a convergent evolution, yeah. you know, like like marsupials have all their different versions of mammals on the different continents, you know. So then he had his own kind of vibe as well. I thought each kind of northern city reacts to punk in very different ways. So Liverpool coming out of punk, they, they got very into West Coast psychedelias. It's a psychedelic type of punk with, with his own shadowy dark. The Bunny Men were a band, they're not a goth band, but they're a band that goths really like because, again, there's that Doors kind of thing going on there, that West Coast yeah. influence. Manchester was Joy Division, again, not a goth band, but a huge influence on goth. You know, in fact, the second band, third band to be called Gothic was Joy Division, wasn't it? There's, Martin Hannon described them as uh, a dance band with gothic overtones, which is a great description. So Manchester was very stark and modernistic. That was a Manchester thing. You know, it was uh, dressed down, but your music's looking into the future. We're going to the future now. So we don't do rock. We go to Leeds, embrace rock music. So whereas everyone else was going on this anti-rockism thing, Leeds, of course, being Yorkshire, went the opposite direction. So, uh, and this is all down to Eldridge's then, girl, then girlfriend, Claire Shearsby, right. who was who, in the clubs, she would play all these records, you know, so she'd be playing Stooges, she'd be playing rock and roll stuff, the Ramones, all that kind of stuff is in the mix, Suicide's in the mix as well. And that's part of the lead thing. The lead thing was to wear Paisley shirts, Winkle Pickers, uh, and Motorhead, Motorhead and Hawkwind, that was big in Leeds as well, and to reevaluate them, you know, because no music has no value, you know, it's not... This idea that all old rock music had no value at all, which was like the enemy perspective, was kind of poo-pooed in Leeds. It was the other way around, you know. Like Lemmy writes great music; he's a great songwriter, mm. you know, which he is actually. And uh, and this kind of mixes into their their journey of post-punk. It's the knowingness and almost the anti-rock idea of post-punk, whilst embracing rock. So it's an ironic take on rock music. And sometimes that you because it is such an attractive thing, rock music. If you're trying to be ironic about it, sometimes you will fall into the pit <laughs> and become rock. But sometimes if you get it right, you kind of rock without being rock. And that was the quite intellectual game that the sisters were playing. And they made it work very well. They're a great rock band who aren't a rock band at all. I mean, that's typified by Alice, which broke through. And I think you were saying about it was written in Claire Shearsby's flat as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they were the core of the scene, weren't they? You know, they were the glamour couple of leads in a sense, weren't they? And the drum machine thing was really interesting as well. And the way Eldritch always programmed the drum patterns, you know, that was him that was doing that. So, and, and what I really like about them, this tells you an awful lot about the sisters that he designed the logo and the t-shirt before he wrote a song. So the aesthetics are really important. It had to look right, you know, had to, uh, they always look good. And I like the way they kind of look rock and roll, but quite nerdy at the same time. 
you know, the original Sisters lineup. It's only when Wayne Hussey joins, he's more rock and roll. He's he's been in bands that had hits before, and he's he's got the rock and roll thing down. He knows about you know the where to get the right clothes from. Whereas the Sisters were more. They didn't like a post-punk band, you know, but they just had to be playing rock music instead of like experimental music. So yeah, so so that Leeds thing was, and all the bands in Leeds did that drum machine model. Some of there's about twenty bands all doing their own versions of it, and it becomes kind of the West Yorkshire kind of sound. It's its own sound. It's a, it's a micro scene within a scene, isn't it?
And you mentioned West Yorkshire. So you go next door and you've got Bradford and you've got New Model Army. Yeah, it was, again, all these groups that existing in isolation from each other. I mean, and again, I'm in a band who aren't golf, but very big in golf clubs. You'd always hear them, you know, and when we, and all, all the lads who like chicken dancing, that was one of theirs. You know, those them and fear to hate people do the uh, the chicken dance through the elbows sticking out. It's, I mean, New, New Model Army, New Model Army quite interesting, aren't they? Because they're still in Bradford yeah. and they're not from Bradford. He's from down south. He's from Mormonstock, like this really weird Mormon village. And he went up there to go to university and stayed there. In a town that probably a lot of students don't stay in, you know, like most they always stay in, you know, but Bradford, it's not, not a lot to offer for a postgraduate, you know, mm. but, but because he's so stubborn and he probably felt at home in Yorkshire, that stubbornness, you know, that, and, and you have to respect them because he's got his thing and he just relentlessly does it to this day, you know, and, and gets complete loyalty from, from his audience. But because of uh, Jules as well, they were like a driving right. force in creating a scene. So the house they had in Bradford, the bands were rehearsed in the cellar. So there was a band called Violation rehearsed there. And when Ian Asprey stayed over in Bradford, when he was hitchhiking around on the Crass and Poison Girls tour, he stayed for a few days and somebody spotted him dancing in the club saying, he looks good, get him to be your singer. He went to aud- uh, audition for him and he became their singer. And that became Southern Death Cult. And, and that was in New Model Army cellar. Right. So it's like this kind of micro scene kind of going on there as well, you know. And what's interesting about especially Southern Death Call, there's a flamboyance to them, you know. And, yeah. But it's, it's a very homespun flamboyance. These aren't clothes bought on, on um, King's Road. This is homemade, you know, but they create their own flamboyance, like, like Bauhaus did as well in Northampton, yeah. you know, creating a flamboyance away from the big cities. And you find over and over again in this book, a lot of the really interesting esoteric culture was created by people who didn't really have any... There's no one else in town doing it, you know. And it's what have you got? You got an Oxfam shop. It's not like a local cool shop, you know. Every, everything had to be done with your own imagination and making your own stuff, which always kind of tends to make the best kind of pop culture as well. There's a DIY element to the Southern Death Court, and in a way, they're like the great lost band. I mean, they're, they're obviously they got you know Ian Aspen and yeah. Cold, so we end up being really huge. But that, that Southern Death Court album, which is just a collection of outtakes, demos, sessions, and the single hints at what could have been something quite amazing. You know, this uh, this is a very esoteric sound. The song's about Native American culture, which really chimed a lot of people at the time, that warrior spirit. And the whole look of the band, they were all, they were going to break big. They were, they were on the verge of breaking really, really massive. You know, it was it was about to really happen. And then, then it just collapsed in on itself. You've got a real independence and it's like, I'm going to do it myself and I believe in vengeance. There's a real spirit about it. Yeah, well, it's probably more of a punk spirit right. and anger and a very direct anger and a very moralistic, this is what I believe in. This, it's all about belief, isn't it? Which, which actually chimes through a lot of the goth scene, a lot, a lot of the bands. And people follow these bands. It's another thing. People get sleeping bags, go to sleep in bus shells and follow them down the country. And, and there's dogged belief in the groups, you know, which doesn't happen so much nowadays, but there was a belief that these groups or being part of the scene or part of this culture can transcend the dullness and the normality of normal life, you know, and the country then, you know, it was, it was like a, a shit government and the country was falling apart, it seems. I mean, it's very difficult these days to imagine, imagine that, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I always think that when I listen to all those records of the late 70s, they haven't dated at all. Wouldn't it be great mm. if you listen to all those songs, thought, God, isn't it weird? Well, I can't imagine what those times are like. But you listen to them now, you think, oh God, it's just the same shit, isn't it? Zooming out as, as you do towards the end of the book, it goes again to how goth or the, the influences of goth is all pervasive from fashion, culture, 
Wednesday Adams, you've got Goff threaded through and it's in the TikTok generation and, and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an eternal theme, isn't it? So, you know, the idea that it was um, of that kind of time, you know, that, you know, like the Byron thing in the poetry there, and that amazing night at Geneva when they did all that weekend when they wrote the books, is probably is a, a, a gothic high point, isn't it? I mean, a competition, you're going to write a book, who's going to write the best book over a weekend? They write two or three of the most classic books of all time, especially in that kind of genre. So, so that then it was writing books, and then it was writing, making music. Whereas now, what's fascinating is it's like you got like, you know, you see Instagram goth influencers dressed up in sort of goth clothes, standing in the forest in the middle of Russia, well, not Russia now, but mm. in the middle of a, a dense forest in Europe or somewhere, but no music. The music isn't part of it. I mean, it's still big goth, new goth yeah. bands, and the old goth bands called trad goth, which I love that term. It's really good. So, the music is not the central part of it anymore. The style is. So it, it goes in all different kind of medias. It's kind of novels are obviously very influenced by gothic sort of themes, uh, which kind of brings it back to the beginning. In the sense, films, you know, you look at a Batman film, yeah. anything Tim Burton touches, because Tim Burton was a teenage goth. And he probably, I think in a way he almost still is a teenage goth. Isn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, and so, of course, Wednesday is completely a full circle, and it's, this is him putting it back into mainstream culture. So apparently now the cramps in America, like all the teenage kids dance to the cramps and, their, their Spotify numbers just went through the roof, didn't they? When when that track, when she was dancing to that track, so so it's it's not like a thing that died out. It's an eternal theme, and it's just I mean, so now you'll have TikTok goth influencers, Instagram goth influencers. It's it's whatever the media is and how it reflects on those themes that time. So I mean, obviously I point that out in the book, and you talk about I talk about YouTube goth influencers and stuff like that. But um, the key period of the book, of course, is the post-punk music period because that's how it all got defined yeah. for people like me, in, in a sense. But uh, now it's that's part of the story, but it's not the whole story because the influence pervades across all different cultures, from gaming to film to social networking. You know, in 40 years' time, it will pervade into other different medias and spaces. That's a great summation. John, what a pleasure it is to speak to you. The Art of Darkness, The History of Goth, fantastic read and goes back from the Roman Empire to the TikTok and Instagram generation. So, (laughs) 2,000 years, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. It's been great to speak with you. All right, thanks Thanks for your time as well.
thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.